This presentation was from Yorks Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au. Welcome back. I uh, hope you all enjoyed the morning tea break. We've got three talks, uh, a 45-minute and two 20-minute talks in the lead-up to lunch. One of our um, regular presenters over the years is joining us up next. Uh, Ash has been uh, working in this industry, I'm happy to say, longer than I have, which is good. It, when he talks, it actually makes me feel a little bit younger, which is nice. Um, that's a, that's a, a neat trick, believe me. Ash uh, at, at Tobias and Tobias do uh, some really fabulous work, fabulous work on a fairly regular basis. You can count on them to have some interesting things to say, which is why we keep getting him back. So please join me in welcoming Ash Donaldson to the stage. Thanks, Ash. Thank you, Steve, and thanks for making me feel old. Um, so yesterday, Sharon uh, talked uh, about the impact of design at different scales, and it was a great way to open the conference. Uh, I mean, it's fantastic the, what, what's been going on at the conference. Um, so Sharon was talking about how we can shape our cities, and that links beautifully uh, with our responsibility as designers because we have a lot of power. Uh, today, I hope to convince you that ethics should be an integral part of your practice. I'll tell you a story of struggling, personally, uh, with some ethical is issues and discovering through my team that values and ethics are what make our practice flourish. So, that first moment, I held my son, Archer, in my arms. This, was, this is him about two minutes old. Uh, a really strange thing happened. I, I've... I've been working in this industry for a very long time. I've been doing research for a very long time. And I've always thought of myself as, as a rather uh, empathetic type of person. But this fundamental shift happened when I picked up Archer. The locus of my very being and my concerns jumped from a little place between my eyes to the center of this little human. And Actually, it was something that I could viscerally feel. I wasn't so worried about myself anymore. I was everything. My whole being was worried about the health, the welfare, the growth and development of this little person. And I started worrying about the future he would grow up in, the, the future that we as designers are creating. So... It's amazing how much you, you actually learn from kids. Uh, he's now almost four. Um, but at the time that my wife was pregnant with him, I decided to do something for the community and go back. And uh, I, I took up a course with St. James Ethics Centre uh, so I could teach ethics at the local primary school, Manly Village. Um, so I signed up for this and... I had to attend uh, a couple of weeks of training and then every week I'd prepare my materials and, and go into a grade five classroom and sit with these kids. Now, they say that you teach, but they strictly forbid you from teaching. Um, the, the ethics centre was, uh, was very clear in uh, not teaching in the sense of the word that I was used to. Uh, we weren't allowed to lecture 
we weren't allowed to share our opinion. Um, we weren't allowed to guide them in any way. What we had to do was drop an, a moral question, a quandary, to these kids and simply facilitate what they did, facilitate the conversation around it, just make sure that it was kept civil because there was hot debates, there were reactionary things that happened in this. Now, these scenarios started simply, but they became more and more complex over time. It was great to watch the kids. As I said, you learn so much from watching, watching kids develop, and it makes you so much more aware of yourself. It was great to watch these kids um, without the guidance of any adults or any moral teachings, just figure out their own values, just to observe as they thoughtfully discussed these things. Uh, and they debated respectfully. Um, I, I barely needed to be there at all. Uh, I was just there as an excuse for them to, to have these discussions, and they actually really appreciated it. Um, so they, they, they reflected, they discussed, they debated, they, they formed their own opinions of right and wrong in tricky circumstances. And it occurred to me, it's something that I hadn't done myself. It was around the same time, nearly four years ago, that uh, I'd been speaking with Simon Tobias. Uh, he'd come over from the UK and was starting up his own little thing over here. And uh, so we had long walks on the beach, it was very romantic, uh, just discussing the, the state of play uh, of UX in Australia and, and talking about you know, my passion uh, around behaviour design. Um, eventually we decided to join forces and uh, we, we established, or he'd already established it, but, but we started to, to grow uh, the, the Australian branch of Tobias and Tobias. But we differentiated it with behaviour design. All was going well until a, a potential new client, a brilliant client, had proposed we design something that is typically a grubby product, a, a grubby financial product. It's a form of easy access credit that often results in people falling into a credit hole off the back of an impulse purchase. Now, these were a big client, they were a good client, that would help us grow, but I didn't want to do work like that. And so Simon and I had a number of debates around this. And one day on the ferry, um, I remember it very clearly, he finally said in exasperation, you're a designer, fix it. And then I understood him. Uh, you know, I thought he was going on, on on some other bend, but we'd been talking at cross purposes. He was right. My job, my responsibility as a designer is to uncover real problems and design solutions for them. Financial institutions are an essential part of our, uh, of our society's uh, infrastructure. And the products and services they provide uh, can either be designed to do great harm or do great good. It just depends on how they're designed. So I ended up going in, shaping uh, the research, uncovering some critical opportunities and devising a product that would be profitable for the bank. Um, it would uh, bolster the bank's brand uh, because what it was doing was helping specific merchants and their clients when they were in a, a desperate situation. And it was doing it in a fair, transparent way.
was doing this instead of just leveraging them for short-term profit to hit that quarterly result. It was a win-win-win. Now, if you look back at my uh, checkered history of, of UX Australia talks, I think I've spoken on everyone so far, um, it, they all lead up to one about ethics. When we worked with Hello Sunday Morning, we were researching with an at-risk population, people with alcohol dependence. Now, from my human factors training, I was aware of the types of sensitivities and mitigation factors I thought I'd need for my research, but I was still unprepared for some of the challenges I faced. There are some critical responsibilities you face as a researcher, and if you've had formal training, thankfully, it's a mature field and these responsibilities are well documented and discussed. They're responsibilities to the welfare of the, the participants in the research, protecting their identity, uh, being transpar uh, transparent about the purpose of the, of the research, having a plan for when people find themselves in distress. And this also includes the researcher. Uh, in at-risk communities, the mental and physical welfare of everyone involved is at risk. Uh, there's also the responsibility to the public. If you're going to be publishing the research in accurately and openly uh, revealing your findings, not selectively editing or, or consciously biasing results to match ideologies or, or predetermined uh, conclusions. There's your responsibility to the sponsors of the research, to be honest about the capabilities and limitations of the researchers and the extent to which the outputs can be trusted. And there's also the responsibility to the data and putting boundaries around how it's handled and what it can be useful, both now and in the future. Now, the great thing about talking to you guys, um, the UX community, is it always helps me, and it helps all of us when, when we do do this, uh, not only share our flawed stories, uh, you know, the, the mistakes that we've made in the hope that, that you guys won't make the same mistakes, um, it gives us the ability to reflect critically on our practice. And in the process, it also attracts uh, a, a great team. Now, our first PhD candidate hire was Mike Palmy. Plenty there. Uh, he's an anthropologist. Um, and the thing you should know about anthropologist or anthropology is, because of its really dirty, checkered past, uh, it has ethics at its very foundation. Um, and Mike was vocal about it. When, when he joined the organisation, he started raising a bunch of uh, ethical issues. But so was Max Crichton, our behavioral economist, and Christina, and Eunice, and most of the team had just cascaded. As soon as someone started talking about it, the discussions flowed, and it, it was like a floodgate got released. Uh, across all our Slack channels, there were ethical uh, discussions uh, cropping up. So we ended up creating an ethics Slack channel where we could just talk about these things, debate and discuss them. And a lot of the ideas, uh, you know, discussions challenged all of us, but they also helped us understand where we stood on certain issues and critically reflect on why. So as we outgrew our first office and moved into our next, uh, we took the time to sit down and think about what the promise of uh, was of joining uh, Tobias and Tobias, and where the reality lay. And that was some tough, open, honest conversations in itself. We discussed the type of work that we were doing versus the type of work we'd love to be doing. We uncovered common values and roughly articulated them in a strategy document. 
we practiced the human-centered design method on ourselves, applying the same techniques that we would for our clients. It's always good to eat your own dog food. Now, as designers, we all have good intentions, but you're not remembered for your intentions. You're remembered by your actions. And the interesting thing about intentions is they're vague things. They're unarticulated feelings. We have an optimism bias that tells us, I'm a good person, I'm a researcher, I'm empathic, I'm great. Um, and can then rationalise, therefore, what I do is good. It helps people in not-so-ethical situations do the cognitive backflips they need uh, to think that they're not hurting anyone because they hadn't set any boundaries ahead of time. Linguistics and cognitive psych tells us that uh, concepts that don't... tells us that concepts don't exist until we have the language um, to articulate them. Values don't exist until you have the language to be able to acknowledge, to articulate and act on them, to set your own boundaries that you will not cross. In this business, there's a fine line between the goals of an organisation and the welfare of its customers. If that line isn't articulated, it simply doesn't exist. Now, the outputs of our workshop allowed us to at least uh, start on that journey, to have a shared language about our values, which was a, a really worthy start. Um, we we do, determined that we're radical, uh, we're daring, passionate, innovative and progressive as a team, that we're purposeful, we keep the bigger picture in mind, uh, we focus on, on meaningful change and we make the world a better place, that we're understanding our empathy is the foundation of our good ethics, our approach is the foundation of our professional integrity, and that we're impactful, our knowledge, intelligence, approach, Hard work and pragmatism create effective quality solutions for our clients. As we grew, we, we delved more into the ethics of the research that we were doing. As I mentioned, ethics is the core of anthropology. Since the field was known delightfully as the handmaiden of colonialism and had these wonderful results, um, it's since been led by the guiding principle of do no harm. But there was something missing. So I started considering the ethics of design. Many design associations, like AGDA, um, take a stand on ethics with guiding principles. But whereas research ethics, like the American Association of Anthropologists, um, have their statement on ethics that are about protecting the welfare of research participants, design ethics, as they stand, are, are more about protecting the professionalism of the practitioners and their relationship with clients. Research is about people, whereas design is about objects. If anthropology's leading principle is do no harm, then design's is do good work, which is a fair goal, considering the definition of ethics is the moral principles that govern a person's behaviour or the conducting of an activity. And design is just an activity. But it sell, this sells short the impact design has on people. Design can be thought of... Uh, as basically the handmaiden of industry. And that has a hell of a lot to answer for, and it's being left unaccounted. That got me count, uh, considering the foundations of ethics. If you look at the earlier teachings of the Greeks, ethics was about something called the proxima, 
um, affecting people you know or people who are in physical proximity of. Proxima, in fact, just means next to or your neighbours. Um, ironically, it's Latin, not Greek. Go figure. Uh, it was a concept limited in, in reach by the technology of the time. Scrolls were only new on the scene, so things weren't being wi widely published. Uh, it was mostly an oral tradition. Um, and travel was rudimentary, limiting the, the reach that people commonly had. Fast forward to 1972, a few days before I was born. Yes, I am old. Um, Hans Jonas published a paper about the need for uh, new ethics and technology. No one had come up with this. But it was just a paper about the need for it. And he argued that we have this need because what we can design can last beyond us. It affects future generations. You can see where design and industry kind of have to hold account for that. Then again, there seems to be a bit of a gap and nothing appeared uh, until Christine Miller wrote Owning It, Evolving Ethics and Design in Design Research in 2016. And she did a review of, of all the literature and basically said, no one's done anything about this yet. You see, um, in 2016, uh, she had this extra layer that she was adding to it as well. Design is no longer just proximal or temporal. It's infinitely scalable and immediately available. If I publish an app today, it can be uh, available worldwide that second. But what's the harm in that? The French cultural theorist, Paul Virilio, who's best known for his philosophical musings on technology, has a, a famous quote that starts, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. Basically, there are consequences to everything that we release into the world. And in the service of behaviour design, I often like to promote uh, Lewin's uh, equation, behaviour equation, uh, which is that behaviour is a function of a person and the environment. We design the environment, so we shape people's behaviours. We're responsible for the resulting behaviours of people interacting with our products, our services, and our spaces. Unfortunately, in this time of uh, technological hyper-frenzy, um, people often think about ethics when it's too late. They're more interested in numbers than they are in impact. Um, Tony Fidel, he's the CEO of Nest uh, and co-creator of the iPod and, and uh, subsequently the iPhone. He recently told a, a London Design Museum audience that he wakes up in a cold sweat, worried about, about what he's helped unleash on the world. Central to his concerns, the fact that his two kids are addicted to screens. It's a behavioural addiction. And behavioural addictions don't feature in the DSM. Uh, so they don't really exist yet. Unfortunately, the evidence is starting to demonstrate behavioural addictions are just as potent as, um, uh, as substance addiction, except they're re uh, more, more readily accessible to almost anyone. Now, compare Tony's regret to Steve Jobs' foresight. The CEO of Apple famously would not let his kids have an iPhone or iPad. Two years after the launch of the iPad, in an interview, uh, he was asked what his kids thought of the iPad. He answered, actually, we don't allow the iPad in the home. We think it's too dangerous for them, in effect. 
You see, he knew that what he was designing had the potential to be addictive, had the potential to harm. What can we say about his ethics? This year, we went to Habit Summit. Uh, took a, a few of the, the team over the, uh, to San Fran, and we heard Nira Yal open the conference with a keynote entitled, Cashing in on the promise and peril of persuasive technology. And the beginning of this keynote heartened me, even though I'd been warned off by a, a, a good friend uh, about this conference. So the beginning of, of the keynote was warning about the impact of behavior design. But then he shifted into proposing that as a species, we're really good at adapting and adopting to new technologies. And he provided scant anecdotal evidence that satisfied him, but looking around the room, not many other people, um, that kids weren't as affected by tech. Throughout the conference, he went on proudly about implementing and ruthlessly optimizing habit loops, um, things that hook people purely for, for profit uh, and engagement scores and, and whatnot. And he provided tips and models on how to replicate his uh, success to, to an open audience of a few hundred people. Of course, he had a, a story of doing some pro bono work. He did a, a few weeks' worth of pro bono work for a, a, a good uh, organisation. Um, I think it was back in 2012. And that, you know, morally cleansed him of his sins. The problem is habits, when purposely designed uh, as in the, the hook canvas model, as a, as a trigger, uh, an action, a reward, and asking for investment... They create this dangerous loop. They can lead, if they're effective and efficient, to obsession, compulsion, or addiction. Now, this goes for all the latest trends in increasing engagement and precisely affecting behaviour across behaviour design, from gamification of systems uh, to applying compliance psychology and neuroeconomics in advertising, from behavioural economics and, and nudges from the government to hook routines and habit loops from app developers. Behaviour design carries with it the burden of responsibility for controlling someone's behaviour. We can't mince words about that. Without methodically applying some ethical techniques, it can be hard to discern what might have conse uh, negative consequences and how. I said before, there's a fine line between the goals of an organisation and the welfare of its customers. Well, there's also a fine line between persuading someone to do something in their own best interest and coercing them to do something in your best interest. Of course, it's easy to pick on something like a poker machine as it's designed specifically to trigger every sense and hook us into efficiently and effectively handing over money that we don't even have. But what about simple apps? You know, a direct correlate to a poker machine might be Candy Crush Saga. It's designed using exactly the same hook routine as a poker machine. And it was quite effective. Before it was acquired by Blizzard, uh, the developer King um, published their, their last annual results in, in 2014. Their revenue was $2.26 billion on the back of that. But it never received the scrutiny of, of real gambling. It was just an iPhone app, after all. But that's an easy one. You, you can see the, the comparison between the two. It doesn't take a great uh, imagination to, to see that direct correlation. But 
What about casual free-to-play role-playing games? Something like Kim Kardashian's Hollywood. Now, this is designed in exactly the same way. It uses exactly the same techniques, except it's also got a layer of social compliance on top of it. Um, I think in the, in the first quarter, uh, it made $43.4 million uh, as it was launched. People became addicted, they lost money, they lost jobs, and it's legal and unregulated, even for kids. Let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum, though. Uh, what about something designed to help people, like fitness trackers? Uh, I saw next door Donna's got a, a Shine one. Uh, a lot of people are wearing Fitbits or Apple Watches. Now, the gamification built into fitness trackers um, has been a sudden blow to mental health services. You know, this is something that is just helping people get fit, right? Well, some people. Um, it's propelled the rapid growth of niche industry treating people with exercise addictions. We're doing some work with the Centre for Eating and Dieting Disorders, uh, and this is something that's coming onto their radar as well. Uh, across America, it's a big thing at the moment. So some people become obsessed with not breaking a streak. It's the routine that's built in to these things. Um, and, you know, there's a, a number of effects working on people, the, the, the biggest one here being sunk cost. I can see that I've got a streak, I don't want to break it, and as it gets bigger, the effect gets worse. So, people don't want to break that streak, even when they get injured. Now, I don't know this guy's story. Uh, I was just filming a nice morning in, in Manly. Um, he, comes, uh, he used to just run up and down all the time. Uh, he's got his, his fitness tracker on. Uh, so I'm assuming it, it, it might be something like this. I could be completely wrong. Uh, but he has still been running and swearing for the last three months. Uh, he just drags his leg and grunts and swears while he does about 5K. So what these apps and devices need is a bit more forethought of their usage. They need a stop routine built in to help people maintain a healthy routine with their usage. And I'm not talking about something like sports bet. Uh, you know, they've got the, the I have a gambling problem uh, button that requires an addict to first admit they have a problem and then to have the sanctity of mind to say, I better stop this now. Um, I mean, some might argue that that's just hand-waving to let some people sleep at night and also some good PR story around responsible gambling, but I wouldn't promote that that was the case. Um, I don't think it's really going to affect their bottom line. No, I'm, I'm talking more about an algorithm that detects unhealthy patterns and breaks them. Anyone my age will remember the dual-screen screen handheld games that, that Nintendo and, and a bunch of others put out, uh, things like Donkey Kong. Now, as kids, we played those whenever we could. Morning tea time, when uh, we're, we're swapping uh, stories on how to, how to get through certain levels and everyone's you know, rooting on everyone else. Um, we learned to clock it. So get to the end of the game and boom, you've achieved satisfaction. And then we went back to our normal life. It had a natural stop routine. It had a conclusion. 
Do you know the most effective treatment for people with exercise uh, addiction based on one of these uh, unbroken streaks is simply break the streak, reset to zero, and then they're cured. It's a really simple thing. But do the designers of Fitbit, Shine, or uh, Apple Watch consider these things? I, I very much doubt it. We definitely need a new ethics for what we as designers do. As we continue to grow, I'm feeling the pressing need to better communicate our stance and start formalizing some of our tools and protocols. As a team, uh, we're all aware of our values, but what happens when we bring on a new team member or a contractor or a vendor or get a new client? The best thing to do is to establish your eth ethics, values and approach up front. And this is something that back in 2015, IDEO had the foresight to do. Um, they produced a little book on design ethics for their team, but also for their clients. It served to introduce new staff to the IDEO way. It created a common language and helped onboard new staff seamlessly. But more importantly, it set expectations and answered tricky questions for clients before they were raised, the types of tricky questions that we've been facing. Now, as many have said at this conference so far, if you leave something unstated, people make assumptions. This little book outlined IDEO's ethics and values that they would not comp compromise. This is something that, as a practice, we'll certainly be drawing on um, uh, for inspiration, i.e. stealing, uh, and, and building on it to produce a, a similar tool. So uh, internally, the, the robust conversations and, uh, evolved and continued. We purchased books and read, discussed, and debated more. Uh, we joined the Ethics Centre uh, as an organisation, which is great, uh, to start looking for guidance on how we could develop our own framework. Um, and it was well worth it. Uh, you know, they not only provide guidance on, on ethics uh, and have tons of resources, they also hold some fantastic uh, regular events and, and debates. Now, it's great to know and live your, your values, but when you want to communicate them to others, uh, simply and concisely, as IDEO have, it's best to have an outside perspective. Now, we wanted to rebrand uh, to better reflect where, where we evolved to as an organisation. You saw the, the title slide was, was our new brand. We had a wonderful uh, brand design firm, Designer Rice, come in and uh, they were good enough to apply the human-centered design uh, process on us for, for our new brand. Um, you might have noticed that uh, we, we've made that, that simplification um, to, to simply to bias. Uh, that's to keep with the heritage of, of our organization as well as reflect our better, uh, our behavior design competency and also because I like dad jokes. Um, we went out and spoke with clients, did some research and handed over the results. Designer Rice then came in and spoke to us, watched us, probed us. Eventually they captured our purpose beautifully, which is, you know, at Tobias, uh, we want to drive positive and lasting change for communities, companies and future generations by placing people at the heart of our design process. Then they articulated our values in a way that's easier for newcomers to grasp. It also gives us an even better foundation on which we can create our own ethics framework. We approach things with open hearts and open minds. We always want to learn more. We have endless curiosity. Um, we speak for the unspoken, those with no voice. We fight for what's right. 
we play on the edge. We always like to test the boundaries and push things a bit further. As our practice grew, we faced and overcame similar challenges and we talked about them at meetups, conferences like this, um, and, and people responded to that. You know, we're, we're reaping the benefits of gaining a good reputation, seeking and winning purposeful work, and attracting and retaining smart, passionate people. My team have helped me uh, discover that our values and ethics are what make us flourish as a practice, and they're a brilliant team. And I want all of you to be able to do that too. I want us all, as an industry, to be proud of our work and the impact it has. But we need to start having this conversation more broadly. We need to start making ethics a core competency of the design community. So how do you get started? I'm starting to formalise some uh, tools for our practice. There are guides around specific types of research ethics. We're, we're doing a lot in health, so we, we all uh, often draw on NHMRC's health research ethics. Um, we're also getting a, a formal ethics approval uh, at the moment for some more at-risk uh, research, uh, which has been a, a fantastic journey, which we've learned a lot from. Of course, there's also IDEO's little book of design ethics, uh, design research ethics that, are, that I just mentioned that we can build on. There are also plenty of tools out there for traditional ethics around decision-making. With decision-making, you can get as complex uh, with big decisions um, as applying a theoretical framework, and there are several long and drawn-out 10 and 12-step uh, processes that can take months to go through. But... The quick and dirty smell test works just as well. If you feel a bit uneasy about a decision, you simply imagine the immediate impact of your decision and how it will be viewed by yourself and others. That's my daughter, by the way. Isn't she beautiful? <laughs> so how would you explain this decision to your kids? How would you feel if the media picked it up tomorrow um, and it was reported on the news? Can you live with the decision? Can you sleep at night? How would your mother feel if she heard about this decision? But then there's that gap I mentioned in the ethics of human-centered design, something that I want us all to address. I was recently invited to speak on a panel at Vivid um, with the title, Can Technology Make Us More Human? And it was great. It provoked some really interesting thoughts. Do we want technology to amplify what it means to be human? Humans are social uh, creatures by evolutionary decree. As a result, we look after our own in-group, those that we identify with. But we also compete, vilify, and destroy those in out-groups. Is it any wonder that Microsoft's AI chatbot became a racist asshole in less than a day? It simply amplifies our humanness. So what we should aspire to is technology that increases instead our humanism a subtle but important disti distinction. Humans suck by nature. Really, we do. But our ability to show compassion and caring to those like us doesn't. More of us are working on machine learning and, and AI. Uh, we're the ones creating the seed and boundary conditions. And it concerns me that um, in the, the tech community, they have a lot around... The, the discussions have already started around the, the ethics of artificial intelligence, yet they're not the ones creating the seed and boundary conditions. It's people like us that are. So we've, we've got to understand their own values and bake them into these seed and boundary conditions, even in the simplest instruction sets. Um, 
because the, the more complex self-replicating uh, AI that results could be catastrophic without it. If research has the guiding principle of do no harm and design has the guiding principle of do good work, I agree with Christine Miller in thinking that human-centered design, the blend of research and design, should have the guiding principle of do good. We have the power to. My first attempts at thinking about the impact of our design start with simple envisioning techniques. Uh, we already practice forms of envisioning with, uh, with our clients with some fun little exercises to reduce risk in a pro project. Things I, I, I think I've mentioned before, like the pre-mortem. Um, so we, we often conduct a pre-mortem early uh, in a project just to make sure that everyone speaks their mind about those hidden elephants in the room. Uh, we, we put a bunch of pillows and soccer ball under a sheet so it looks like a dead body. Uh, we, we have some little electric candles that we put in. We lower the lights, turn on some funereal music and set the scene, you know. Uh, this is your project. It died a horrible death. Nobody saw it coming, or did they? Write down four or five reasons on individual post-it notes that this project died so terribly that you can't even look other people in this room in the eye. And people do. They write it all down, get it out, and then we can actually mitigate those things. It's a great little technique. Um, and we can create similar simple exercises for figuring out possible future impacts of our designs. This doesn't take a lot of effort. It's a tiny, tiny thing to consider. But we can start with topics like addiction. What if, what if people became a addicted to your design? What if everyone used your design? How will a future generation use your design? How can your design be harnessed by not-so-ethical people for wrongdoing? What if AI took your goal to the extreme? Now, at Tobias, we're only at the beginning uh, of, of our journey in this, forming our own ethical framework. But as an industry, wouldn't it be good if we could come together to, to create a design ethics community of practice. Together we can design some values for human-centered design, figure out some guiding principles, map out a manifesto that we can hold ourselves and our colleagues accountable to. And we can communicate to this to clients so we can work on the types of things that we want to. We can help them because no one wants to do evil, no one wants to do harm. It's an ongoing journey of reflection and refinement that we can all be part of. Now, I'm certainly going to work on it uh, for the sake of my children and for your children. If you want to, a bit of a plug, you can uh, uh, drop me an email at join how might we do good together and uh, we'll invite you to our Slack channel. I'll post these slides and, and tweet this call to action uh, again later. Uh, and none of, you, none of you are going to, uh, to do it because it's just before the, the, the closing keynote, but don't forget to turn up to Mike's talk because it ties in nicely with this. It's on value. So hopefully together we can design a better world. Thanks, Ash. I'm going to ask a question and then, and then ask others. Um, oh, actually. Quite simply... 
Uh, it feels like one of the big pitfalls of uh, ethics in design is who gets to define what good looks like in do good. Mm. Who, who gets to define that? Uh, you have to do it for yourself. Um, and and that's, that, that's always the, the, the first step of, of this journey. Um, in creating your own ethical framework, you have to set your own boundaries. You have to figure out what your values are first. And there's, uh, you know, humans, um, just watching, watching the kids uh, when, when teaching ethics, there are fundamental rights and wrongs. People know how to treat other people and no one told them what is right and what is wrong in the most you know, confounding situations. After half an hour, they come to what is right and what is wrong. So there are some universal principles around it. And that's where you start with, here are the universal principles, here are my personal values. Now let's build some tools to build on that. Hey, Ash, thanks. That was a really um, thought-provoking talk. I have a question for you around, there's, there's probably people in this room, people at this conference, and part of their job is to use their understanding of human nature to get people to gamble, mm. to create these apps, to create these addictions. Um, going back to your point of you're a designer, fix it. Is there any way that you can actually use your design and, and knowledge about humans ethically in that scenario? Or are people who choose to use their powers to, you know, uh, get solve that business objective? Is it, are they just morally bankrupt? No, no, but it, it, it's, it, it's a, a, a very hard thing to, to pass judgment on people. As I said, if you haven't set a boundary, um, you can do the, the cognitive backflips required to, to still think you're a good person. Uh, and the funny thing is people transfer the, the, the onus of responsibility from themselves to the punter. Um, and... and from what I've seen uh, across gambling in in industry, uh, a lot of it is dehumanising. So it's just about numbers. It's never ar around the, the people. And so they've got their own little protections around this. But if you are a designer in, in that, I, I mean, gambling just is not a, an ethical area. But if you are a designer in that field, then there's a lot you can do. Um, instead of doing the hand-waving, you know, I, I'm addicted or I've, I've got a problem. Uh, you can actually build in stop routines uh, and, and actually get people to ahead of time. Um, we're, we're very good at planning ahead of time, but in the heat of the moment, we're not very good at executing on it. So ahead of time, if you can say, I want to make sure I, no, I gamble no more than $100 in a month, that's a lofty aspiration and you're never going to stick to it. But if your app then locks you out of it, then... It's better. Ash, thanks for the talk. Um, yes. uh, I, I do find uh, that this is one of the great areas, I guess, for new thinking in our, in our work as designers and technologists. Um, beyond envisioning uh, universals and, and personal perspective, what can you share from your work or, or where we might go next, I guess, about uh, techniques for discovery of latent or submerged ethical issues, the ones you might say uh, we would rather find out before it's too late? Well, I, and that's where, um, you know... I'm talking about quick and dirty techniques. I want us all to, to try and figure this out because I'm just a babe in the woods with this. I, I did some ethics back 15 years ago um, and now I'm working with the Ethics Centre to, to try and uh, build some more of this and it requires everyone's input. But the, the point behind envisioning techniques is they are the quick and dirty things that let you see, you know, let, let's take this goal to its ultimate end. 
let's put some extremes on it. What would be the impact on, on people? And then you can start using frameworks to say, what about people with this type of behaviour, this type of behaviour, this type of behaviour? So that's, that, that's my rudimentary start. Thanks very much, Ash. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Yorks Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.